One thing that people do to keep themselves motivated is to set themselves a short-term goal or a reward. It may be three months or six months out, or it may be next weekend. But maybe we're looking forward to the maybe we are looking forward to the reward of going to the movies or a holiday to Bali. Or maybe we've a goal to pass NCA with excellence. Or get that class five heavy traffic license. Or get a better yield from our farm. Whatever it is, the anticipation, the hope, the goal that helps us, that keeps us, the goal that helps. Let me start that again. Whatever it is, the anticipation, the hope, the goal that helps keep us on, on track as the winter might be long or work might be repetitive. Positive incentive is something we thrive on. It lifts us up and keeps us motivated. Living like that with goals and rewards in front of us is a good habit. Setting our eyes on something in the future helps us stay on course. But it's more than a good habit. It's a scriptural principle. Today I want to look at the goal of fruitfulness and how to get there. Fruitfulness is an aspiration, a hope, a reward, an expectation that our life will count, that we will bless others, that we'll reach our potential, that, that we'll leave a legacy. Being fruitful, it's built into us. We are wired for it. In Genesis 1:28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's wired into us to be fruitful. But today we're going to look at the parable of the sower because the end point of that parable is bearing fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It's the first parable that Jesus spoke about the kingdom. But first, just a little bit of background. There was a silence of 400 years from the last prophet in the Old Testament until Jesus came, until John the Baptist came. 400 years. Imagine 400 years without God speaking. Imagine 400 years when no word from God, silence. What would that be like? That's like going back to the Treaty of Waitangi, and then another 200 years. And not a word from God over that time. Imagine what that would be like. And then all of a sudden, somebody hears about a prophet baptizing in the River Jordan, and, and uh, there's a stir in Jerusalem, and they're thinking, who is this guy? It's like us here in Kaitaia, uh, hearing that somebody's over in the Taipa River baptizing people, and oh, what's going on going on over there? After 400 years, something significant was about to start. The same parallels in the Old Testament. Israel was 400 years in Egypt before God came and delivered them through the prophet Moses at the right time. The message after 400 years was surely a highly significant message. And just as Israel was 400 years in Egypt, and the message that followed was highly significant, the same thing for, um, for the people following Malachi until John the Baptist came 
the message that he, he brought was then a highly significant message. It was the message of the kingdom. John the Baptist's message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was the same, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's a few scriptures just going through the book of Matthew. Jesus was, uh, uh, these are verses about the kingdom, about his ministry of the kingdom. It just permeates this book. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done, he taught us to pray. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Then in Matthew 16, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you in Matthew 19, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then I like this verse in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus used parables to describe the kingdom. It was something that people could not comprehend. And I even wonder today how much we really know about the the power and the glory and the transformation that's going to be on this place when his kingdom really comes. So he used parables to try and get his message across. So what's a parable? A parable is a comparison. If we compare it with this thing, we can see, oh, that's what you're talking about. A comparison that involves an overstatement like an exaggeration we call a hyperbole, a comparison, or we could we can make a comparison that's an understatement, but a, a, a comparison that is an exact statement is called a parable. It's exactly what the kingdom is about. If we want to know what the kingdom is like, a parable shows us exactly what it is. It's not an overstatement. It's not an understatement, it's an exact representation, it's an exact analogy of an aspect of the kingdom. We think of the words paradigm. A paradigm is a pattern or a a model or an example. And uh, the word parallel is alongside one another. And so you get the idea that a parable is is, um, a parable is uh, an exact... um, representation of what Jesus is talking about. Parables were explained to the followers and the disciples, to those who had an attitude to learn, who were teachable, who were willing. And so we're going to look at the parable of the sower. This is the the first, and you could say the most basic parable that Jesus told us about the kingdom. It occupies a special place among all of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom because he said to them, to his disciples later, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? Indicating that it is the simplest and most basic of the parables about the kingdom or that it captures the essence of what the kingdom is all about. 
So we're in Matthew chapter 13. And I'll read a couple of verses before the parable starts. It says, On that day Jesus went out of his house. He was sitting by the sea, and a great multitude gathered to him. Didn't take much for him to draw a crowd, did it? So much so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. In another version it says, because there was no moisture. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, we know something of the interpretation of this. And it's almost like Jesus went out of his house, sat down by the sea, attracted a crowd, got into a boat and said, Today, I want to talk to you about your hearts. The people weren't used to that sort of preacher. Somebody talking to them about their hearts. The Sanhedrin were the political leaders. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. And here's this guy wanting to talk to us about our hearts. Starting to make sense to them. Want to listen to this guy. Effectively, the message that God had for his people after 400 years of silence, was about their hearts. Every one of us has brought our heart here today. Maybe it's a broken heart or a brave heart or a hard heart or a warm heart. Maybe it's a pure heart or a grateful heart Maybe it's a sad heart. Maybe it's an open heart or a generous heart. Or maybe you have an anxious heart, a tender heart, a faint heart, a humble heart, a willing heart, a kind heart or a weary heart, a soft heart or a cheerful heart. So there's all these types of hearts. And you know... Jesus just undercuts us all and said, it's not about your heart, but it's about your response to the Word of God. It depends on our response, now hearing and receiving the Word of the Kingdom. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So we're just going to uh, listen to and watch a video now. This is, about, this is a song made about that quote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The words don't start until a minute into the, into the video. But just let's listen to it. 
our hearts were made for the Word of God. We're designed to be, to hold God's Word in our hearts. We're fashioned to contain God's Word. If it's not His Word, it's some other Word. It's some other Word that guides us, governs us, affects us. But that's not, we weren't designed for that. We're designed to hold the Word of God in our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for flow from it flow the springs of life. Well, the parable of the sower is about one seed, four soils, and seven conditions. Actually, it's about one word, four hearts, and seven principles. And I want to go through that with you today. The one seed that it's, it's about is it's the word of the kingdom because it carries with it power to establish his kingdom in our lives. You know, in our democracy, we may not appreciate what that means. Words come, words go, popularity reigns. We don't understand the power of the word of the king because we don't, we're not ruled by a king. But for a king, his word is law. God speaks, it's done. Okay, so the word of the kingdom is a powerful word to change our thinking and to change our lives. His word is law. In Genesis 1.26, the plan of God was for us to have or belong to a family and share and exercising dominion on earth as God has dominion in heaven. You know, the word of the kingdom makes us kings. The word of the kingdom makes us into kings. When kings were appointed in Israel, their job was to keep their domain up to God's standard. It was their job to make sure that the nation lived according to God's standard. And today, he's appointed us to be kings and keep his standard in the domain that he's given to us. Sometimes we talk a lot about the gospel of salvation, born again, that's great. But the gospel of the kingdom is learning to walk as kings. And I just had this thought, the word makes us kings, but our hearts make us fruitful. So let's look at the four soils, the four hearts that, uh, that are mentioned in this parable. Here they are, the hardened heart, the rocky heart, the crowded heart, and the good heart. And I know I'm jumping over from the parable, parable because uh, I'm assuming that most of us are familiar with this story. The hardened heart is the path beside the good soil, around the outside of the, uh, the field where the sower is sowing the seed. The rocky heart is a part of the, of the field where there are rocks either under the surface or amongst the soil, and so the soil is not very deep in that place. The crowded heart has other stuff growing in it. You know, um, the, the illustration is thorns growing in, in, the, um, in the field. And they grow up at the same time and crowd out the word of the kingdom. And they crowd out the seed. And the good heart is where the seed can enter and put down roots, put up shoots, and begin to bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100 
So the soil beside the road, the hardened heart, is where the word of the kingdom is not understood or accepted, and the evil one snatches it away. That's what it says in... um, um, Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So the first principle we're looking at here is that if we don't understand God's word, it's of no use to us. If we don't understand God's word, it hasn't gone down into our hearts, then it's of no effect What does it mean to understand? Well, it's to have the same ideas as the person who speaks. If we understand somebody, we've got the same, we're on the same level. You know, we are understanding the person who's speaking. Are we on the same understanding as the Lord when he speaks? Or do we have our own ideas and they may or may not match up? Are we in sync with him? To understand somebody means to have the same ideas as that person It means to stand in the midst of their ideas. It means to stand under the influence of their ideas. And uh, in one of the Gospels it says that uh, it's about accepting God's word. I like this, uh, this meaning of understanding, though. Understanding means to stand under God's word. The word that we stand under is the word that we are blessed with. The word that we stand under is what, is what affects our lives, and we, we are blessed by that. To stand under something, whatever that word is, we will receive the blessing of that word. Proverbs tells us to seek for understanding, and the Lord gives understanding. Here's the story. The priest and the principal. A story is told of a conflict counselor who received a phone call from a Catholic priest. No special thing attached to this, to the person being Catholic. This is just the story. The priest and the principal of the parish school had seen their relationship deteriorate to the point where they could no longer communicate. The conflict counselor spoke to both men and said, before we get together, I want you to write down for me what you think the problems are in your relationship. Well, the principal and the priest came to the first meeting. They sat opposite one another, and the conflict counselor asked them to read out their lists. And the priest said, well, I feel that the principal resents my presence in the school. I'd like to play a larger role, uh, but I feel I can't. I'd especially like to be more involved in religious education, but I feel pushed out. Well, then the principal read out his assessment of the problem. I feel that the priest doesn't want to get involved in the school. I can't understand why he feels this way, because we desperately need him, especially in a religious education. And so two people thinking opposite things about each other, not understanding one another. And sometimes, uh, reading God's word, it's like that, isn't it? Don't really understand. I can remember going back, reading the scriptures, especially reading the parables, and anticipating what the answer would be, but it was something totally different. I just did not have the understanding of what God's Word was really saying. Over the, over the years, it does change. But the result of understanding is unity with that person and its power in our lives. Understanding 
means that we have unity with that person who's speaking. We have unity with those words. We are thinking the same as those words, and then it gives us power in our lives. It gives us change. It gives us the ability to change and grow and become all that we know we should and all that God has planned for us. So it's really important to try and understand what uh, the word of the kingdom is. The result of not understanding, though, it doesn't go into our lives. It does not change us. Principle two, the evil one takes away the word. This is, uh, this is mentioned here uh, in the same verse, verse 19. The, if we don't understand the word, the evil one comes and takes away the word. Well, I remember talking to a, a lawyer in town some quite a few years ago, and I was talking to him about the Lord, and I asked him if he believed. And he said, uh, yes, I do, but I can't believe in that evil fellow. I can't believe that he actually exists. I believe in the Lord, but I don't believe that there is an evil person as well. Well, we had a brief conversation, and I carried on, but I hadn't forgotten about that. You know, some people don't believe that Satan exists. They don't believe that he's a real person, that he is a uh, uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, as the Scripture says, seeking someone to devour. Evil one's active, all right. He's around, okay. And not just him, but all his legions and his, his, uh, his army. He's an organized, he's an organized, clever, even angel of light. And we don't even recognize and so we always need to be alert that the evil one does come and he takes the word from us. How many times have you listened to a message and thought, oh, that's a great thing? Then you go away, have some morning tea. What, the, what was it? What was it? You know, you can't remember a thing. And at the time, it seems so, so important. Must hold on to that. That's why we bring a pen and paper, isn't it? That's why we write things down. I have to. I've, my mind's like a sieve sometimes. Can't remember things and uh, writing them down and, and meditating on them, thinking about them, praying through them. It means that they work into my life and I don't, um, don't forget it. But the evil one is active and we need to do what we can to hold on to the words that God gives us. They're life to us. They really are life to us. The enemy devours the word, and that is like devouring our lives. It's like devouring us. What about the second soil? The soil in the rocky places, not very deep. Another uh, version says in Luke 8, I think, lacking moisture, where the word is first received with joy, but it has no root in itself. It's only temporary on account of affliction and persecution. And so this is the third principle in this parable. Affliction will arise because of the word. Affliction will arise because of the word. Affliction is pain, distress, grief. But the Lord has a lot of encouraging things to say about those who are in affliction. Those who have suffered in their flesh have ceased from their sin. First Peter chapter 4. The Lord is close to the afflicted. Are you feeling afflicted today? Oh, sometimes I do. Does affliction come your way? Or am I the only one? 
affliction. It just can come out of nowhere. And, um, and you know, and it's distressing. It's painful and it's even grievous. But the Lord is close to the afflicted. Think of Joseph in the prison. It says his feet were afflicted with iron. And then it goes on to talk about his soul. His soul was like it was in iron as well until God had finished his work. Affliction is like being in the furnace. And if we go by Joseph's example, it's preparation for greatness. Don't run away from affliction. Let God do his work in your soul, in your heart, in your life, and you'll be a better person because of it. In Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I love that verse. Before I was afflicted, I had no idea that I was off course. And then affliction, ah, something, something's not right here. Something's amiss. What, what is it, Lord? Back this way. But now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Verse 71 Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's good for me. And verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God doesn't afflict, afflict us just to gain some sort of pleasure from disciplining us or something. He does it in faithfulness for our good. Affliction causes us not to depend on ourselves, but to call out to God for his spirit in our lives. Right, moving on. Remember, we're going through seven principles. We're up to number, uh, number four. Persecution will arise because of the word. Um, persecution is the infliction of pain, punishment of death upon others, um, it's like affliction, but it's somebody else doing it to me. Why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, it's bad enough being afflicted by circumstances and accidents and stuff that happens, but hey, somebody else is actually afflicting me. Well, that can be harder to bear. <laughs> but Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. you imagine having the roll call of the prophets. Just thought of this. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Laniera. We're in the list. <laughs> okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah... Who else? Joel, Malachi, Raider. He's on the list. We're joining the list of those. They were persecuted. They were persecuted, mate. It couldn't have been easy. Uh, blessed are you if you're persecuted. Count it as a blessing. Your reward is the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews 12 gives us some way of helping us get through that. Uh, if you go through the first few verses of Hebrews 12, lay aside any encumbrance or sin, run with endurance, fix your eyes on Jesus, despise the shame, don't fate when disciplined, 
recognize that God regards you as sons and consider the example of Jesus. It helps us get through persecution. So what about the soil among the thorns? Worry and deceitfulness can occupy our hearts. And uh, this soil is where there is soil and we can put down roots, but there's other stuff growing there and things like worries and cares can occupy our heart and we do not end up bearing fruit. We have some fruit, some root, but we have no fruit. The cares of the poor and the cares of the rich both are a distraction. Not having enough and having more than enough both bring their problems. I saw a headline in the paper the other day, didn't read it, but it said, Richard Branson, the biggest problem with being a billionaire. <laughs> I wonder what it was. <laughs> the biggest problem with being rich. But uh, the Lord said, you know, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God if you are rich. So principle five, worry can stop us being fruitful. Worry can stop us being fruitful. Worry is like feeling anxious about actual or even potential problems. But Philippians 4 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. We get anxious about what we're going to eat or drink or wear or say. We get anxious about tomorrow because there's another, another day coming. We get anxious about life. And if we can't find anything on that list, we'll invent something else. Sometimes we just seem to live on anxieties and it takes us from one day to the next. But that doesn't solve anything. Pray about all of these things as the advice of the Scriptures. Principle six, the deceit of riches can stop you being fruitful. Deceit is believing what is false. The problem is not having riches. The problem is if the riches have got us. We need to be like Paul in Philippians 4 verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. <clears throat> in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. It's good to be free whether we have an abundance or a need. We know that it does, our life does not depend upon it. I like the example of John Wesley. I think he used to live off, say, 10 shillings a week. And then after a while, he, say his income was about four pounds, four pounds. After a while, his income went up to 40 pounds a week or something like that. People were giving more. John Wesley keeps on living on 10 shillings a week. That's all he needed. And more people were giving and more giving and more giving, and he's finding an abundance of finance for his, in his ministry. John Wesley just keeps on living on 10 shillings a week. That's all he needs. And uh, it's obviously riches have not got him. He's got the riches. Focus on the true riches, and the rest will follow. So these principles 1 to 6... They cover our spirit, our soul, and our body. The afflictions that we might have, the testing that we might have. And if, if we can 
go walk through those if we, you know, whatever stage we're at, whatever stage we're at, what, uh, whatever one of or two or three of those things that we're working through, if we can go through that, we'll come through to fruitfulness. The good soil, a pure heart, a good and honest heart, where the word of the kingdom is understood and bears fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Interesting to me that the um, uh, hardened heart does not understand the word of God, no fruit. The exact opposite for the good heart. The good heart understands what God is saying and bears fruit. So it comes down to our understanding. Understanding will make you fruitful. That means we are in amongst God's ideas. We're thinking what he's thinking. We're seeing things the way he's seeing things. Correct understanding will resolve the issues of our hearts. How long, you know, uh, anybody else like me, we carry issues longer than we need to? Day after day, week after week, sometimes, month, years, we carry issues until we find out God's perspective on this. Understanding is to stand under or to accept or to think the same things. If we understand, we won't be phased by afflictions. We'll be able to endure persecution. There will be no place for worry and we'll not be enticed by what the world has to offer. It may take some courage, but the spiritual principle, number seven there, is the key which deals with all our other issues. Fix the spiritual issues in our hearts and the rest will fall into place. So how do we get understanding? Well, if we looked through uh, Matthew chapter 13, I'm just going to wrap it up here shortly. How do we get understanding? Um, chapter 13 in Matthew, verses 13, 14, and 15, it talks, it repeats, I think, three times. It says, hearing and seeing... We hear with our ears, we see with our eyes, and we understand with our heart. And so if we are seeing correctly, if we're hearing correctly, then we'll get the correct understanding in our hearts. It's when we think we're hearing, but we're not really hearing, and if we think we're seeing, like as he says here, um, you keep on hearing, but won't understand. You keep on seeing, but you won't perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they, they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. And so the way to understanding is to see correctly, and to hear correctly, and in following this parable in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, take care what you listen to. I think that's good advice. Take care what we listen to. And in Matthew 6.22, it says, keep your eye single, so that both with our hearing and our seeing, we're taking care of what we listen to, and we're keeping our eyes single, then we're more likely to understand what the message is. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says, 
For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that's the gospel coming to the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Prayer, that's a good thing. So I've got a list here of seven things we can do to increase our understanding. The first thing is take care of what we listen to. The second thing is keep our eyes single. The third thing, pray. The fourth thing, take heart that the disciples, they were actually slow to understand what Jesus was talking about. So it's not just us. They were slow to understand. He said to them, are you still lacking in understanding? It's in the gospel several times. Do you still not understand what I'm talking about? So we're not alone, okay? Number five, consider, ponder, um, because the scripture says there, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. So it's good to consider God's word, to take time to ponder God's word, to think about it, to meditate on it, and understanding comes. Oh, here's a good one. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Well, there's an opportunity to, for practice, isn't it, dear? If we live with our wives in an understanding way, maybe we will learn to live with others in an understanding way and with the Lord in an understanding way. Understanding developed in our lives. And number seven, Proverbs 4.1, do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord. And so that's my message today is uh, from the parable of the sower. It's a parable about the kingdom, yes, but it's a parable for our hearts. Jesus came to talk, talk about our hearts. He came to minister to our hearts. And how we are in our hearts is how we, how we are outwardly. And uh, if, we, if we just take the key to understand, the key to our hearts is understanding. It's hearing what God is saying and agreeing with that. It's accepting God's word into our lives. And uh, then we find the transformation takes place on the inside and works through. Bless the Lord.